to New Retina Radio, and this is something that I've really been looking forward to. It's the New Retina Radio Journal Club, and I'm joined by Jorge Fortune. Hello, Jorge, and welcome to New Retina Radio. Tell us a little bit about New Retina Radio Journal Club. We're, we're excited uh, as uh, members of VBS to partner uh, up with New Retina Radio uh, to launch this new series called New Retina Radio Journal Club. And as the name implies, uh, it is a journal club. But as you know, VBS, Fit Buckle Society, which is a uh, group that was founded by young, innovative retinal surgeons uh, and now has grown over the years to include uh, members from across the world, uh, we like to be slightly innovative. Uh, and while there's parts of the journal club that will be more familiar to our listeners from their training, uh, where we review uh, some of the uh, latest papers. We really try to focus on papers that are clinically applicable to your practice. And so while we go through the data, we'd like to have a collegial discussion among several co-panelists, which is very much in the spirit of BBS, uh, so that what you take away from it is not only the top line data, but really what do these papers mean to our day-to-day -day practice and how we think about our patients and how we think about future directions in research. So, so it's really more of an informal journal club uh, we try to not get so much into the nitty gritty and really have a good group discussion uh, in a way that's easily digestible for our listeners and our viewers. Fantastic. Jorge, tell me a little bit more about the Vit Buckle Society and the meetings that Vit Buckle Society has, your involvement with Vit Buckle Society, Marinelli, your uh, co host's involvement with Vit Buckle Society. Yeah, well, John, as you know, because you're uh, one of the uh, uh, early and original members, the Buckle Society was, was started, uh, I want to say close to a decade ago now, uh, by a group of young vitro-retinal surgeons that wanted to establish a uh, setting where they could discuss surgical issues in a very open uh, and collegial setting. And uh, we started off uh, early on. Uh, I, I joined because of knowing Tom Albini and Ross Lackenpaul when they were at Baylor. So I came along a little bit later, but when you guys started this, you started having meetings in conjunction with other national meetings and it there would be dinners at first. And then uh, we started launching our own uh, standalone meetings and each year it's gotten better and better and the participation has grown more and more. And we've continued to branch out into other uh, areas. And uh, Rinali, uh, who is the other person really responsible for putting together new Retina Radio Journal Club, uh, has been so instrumental in that. As a younger uh, generation has taken over, we've not only branched out from the meetings, but really VBS seeks to get involved now in other educational platforms, uh, you know, including this platform right here, which uh, allows us to reach uh, such a wide audience. You know, there's no doubt, Jorge, that New Retina Radio will be a great platform for you guys that Mernali is involved, it's going to be organized. And if you're involved, it's going to be funny and fun. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to, to uh, put the FUN back in Journal Club. I am joined today by membership from the Vip Buckle Society. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Vip Buckle Society is an organization that was originally founded around young vitro-retinal surgeons uh, but clearly we all do more than just operate and uh, we're here to show that we're pretty well versed in uh, medical retina as well. Today we'll be talking about a medical retina topic and particularly we'll be talking about macular degeneration, neovascular macular degeneration and geographic atrophy, what the role or uh, lack thereof that anti-VEGF treatment plays in it. 
I am honored and it is my pleasure today to be joined by three Vitbuckle Society members, Cynthia Kian, uh, Christina Wang, and Basil Williams. Uh, and uh, before we get into a larger group discussion, uh, Cynthia, let's talk a little bit about these two papers, the first of which is the incidence of macular atrophy after untreated uh, neovascular age-related macular degeneration, which is uh, a study that was based on the AREDS uh, uh, group, uh, looking at patients that developed geographic atrophy in the absence of anti-VEGF treatment, which is a pretty unique study population. And then the second paper, which is the spectral domain OCT-based prevalence and progression of macular atrophy in the Harbor study. Uh, so clearly a different patient population, patients that were treated with anti-VEGF, not only that, but analyzing geographic atrophy using more modern technology in spectral domain OCT, as well as uh, more updated uh, treatment parameters. So with that, Cynthia, I'll just kick it to you so that you can summarize these papers uh, for our listeners and our viewers uh, before we dive into a deeper discussion. Yeah, great. And thanks for the introduction, Jorge. So I'm really looking forward to today's uh, discussion with my co-discussants about these two topics. So the first one, as you mentioned, is the ARIDS report number 40, which uh, came out in the Blue Journal a little bit earlier this year uh, with uh, authors Christakis et al. And um, as you mentioned, Jorge, this is a very particular cohort of patients uh, that's really hard to come by because these are patients that were followed who uh, were untreated, uh, who were basically uh, entered the study between 1992 and 2000 and followed until 2005, who did not receive anti-VEGF therapy at the time of their follow-up. And um, basically uh, what we're looking at here is the incidence of macular atrophy, so specifically uh, different from general geographic atrophy, but macular atrophy that arises from the natural history subsequent to untreated neovascular AMD. So uh, what they looked at is of the um, total population of ARIDS participants, um, 708 eyes of 627 participants were identified to demonstrate neovascular AMD and they became eligible for the study and follow-up. And um, the study used Kaplan-Meier survival curves basically to demonstrate the data, which was also stratified. And what they looked at was how and um, whether there was difference in the incidence and evolution of macular atrophy uh, by division of uh, different, first of all, genotypes of different patients who were in these participants and whether the uh, geographic atrophy status of the fellow eye also affected the um, development and progression of macular atrophy over time. And then of course, overall, how many of these patients who have neovascular AMD at the time of initial um, recruitment did come up or develop um, macular atrophy over time. So what they saw is that, uh, first of all, of the total number of eyes of 708, of 708 eyes, um, about 204 did develop um, incident macular atrophy following neovascular AMD. And the mean time to the development of that atrophy was about uh, 3.8 years. And this number, uh, the cumulative risk of developing it really increased with the years of uh, untreated neovascular AMD that was followed up. So that um, approximately by eight years of follow-up, 50% uh, did develop uh, macular atrophy. And so, um, and if you look at the area where the atrophy developed, um, the central evolving uh, risk of macular atrophy was actually quite high 
with about 30% uh, already appearing right at the first appearance of atrophy. So as soon as the atrophy developed, um, central vision was affecting about a third of all these patients. So we really see that uh, this is something that really increases with time. And uh, what they also looked at with the stratification, as we spoke about in terms of whether there was any demographic uh, differences or whether there was any genetic um, predisposition showed no difference to the um, rate nor to the uh, uh, percentage difference of uh, atrophy development in different subgroups. Um, um, the uh, geographic atrophy in the fellow eye, however, did demonstrate a much higher risk for macular atrophy in the eye that is being treated and followed. And the difference is about 44% at five years for those who do already had geographic atrophy in the fellow eye versus 26% in those who did not. So really this is, as we said, uh, unprecedented um, data because this is obviously now uh, no longer an option for nowadays because as we know, we treat all patients with neovascular um, AMD. So I think the data that it generates is really interesting and gives us, you know, I think, um, as you're saying, debunks sort of the, the, the myth that uh, anti-VEGF, you know, perhaps plays a, a accelerating role in macular atrophy when we see that the natural history of macular atrophy is actually uh, quite um, high, even those patients who uh, just develop uh, neovascular AMD without any treatment. And that really, as we said, by eight years, 50%, and by 10 years, over 60% of patients will develop it. Thanks, Cynthia. That was a, a great overview and succinct uh, presentation on what really was kind of a dense paper. And I think that you pointed out uh, that this paper shows us that geographic atrophy and more likely macular atrophy, which is what, how we refer to atrophy in the context of wet macular degeneration, uh, is a process that happens as a natural course of the disease in this very unique patient population that was not treated with anti-VEGF. Um, and so maybe now we can lead into the second paper, which is a perhaps more direct uh, evidence as to what role anti-VEGF does or does not play in the creation of macular atrophy. Great, absolutely. So the second study comes from a different era. This one is also based on a study we all know very well. Uh, it's um, a postdoc analysis um, based on spectral domain OCT imaging of the Harbor study. And this one also specifically looks at the progression of macular atrophy uh, in the population of patients who were treated for neovascular AMD, as we know, with uh, ranibizumab with two different uh, dose, dosage regimens and also uh, different regimens of treatment. And so um, this paper uh, was also published earlier this year in the Blue Journal uh, by uh, Gune et al. from uh, Vasada's group. And um, what we see is that um, what they um, were able to do is use uh, SDOCT, which as we know previously, um, most of the uh, prior imaging and analysis of macular atrophy was based on either color fundus photos with uh, or without the help of adjuvant uh, fluorescein angiography imaging. And so this uh, was the first paper that really used very uh, strict um, guidelines, which were based on newer uh, criteria for the definition of macular atrophy, which came out of the, uh, the classification of atrophy meetings papers uh, from uh, 2017 and onward, which gave very clear definitions of terms that we know all know for, for example, uh, C-aurora, um, I-aurora, and uh, 
So all these new terms, uh, as we know, uh, macular atrophy is actually a subtype of serora. And by the definition, as per this paper, um, they were looking for um, any signs of macular atrophy, which was defined as fulfilling either um, um, uh, three criteria. So uh, the presence of hypertransmission to the cord, measuring um, a distance of 250 microns or more, uh, loss of uh, RPE for the same um, uh, amount, 250 microns, and any signs of outer retinal loss. And so if um, the patient fulfilled um, all three of those criteria, that was a definite case of macular atrophy. And if there was two criteria fulfilled, this was a, a possible or probable um, atrophy. So this was really the first time that such strict um, imaging criteria based on OCT was used to define the presence of um, macular atrophy based from the patients of the Harbor cohort. And um, what they demonstrated was that, first of all, um, the patients from all four subgroups, so ranibizumab 0.5 monthly, um, ranibizumab 0.5 PRN, ranibizumab 2 milligrams monthly, and ranibizumab 2 milligram PRN, uh, over the 24 months uh, were reviewed, all the OCTs that were obtained uh, on a monthly basis from all the patients were reviewed. And what they saw was that, uh, first of all, the uh, borders of the um, atrophy that was measured as per SDOCT uh, differed from or was more clear cut compared to those that were previously measured using color fundus photo or FA alone in the sense that uh, sometimes because of of blood, of fluid, um, these might have um, obscure details of the borders of the lesion, whereas uh, the SDOCT um, imaging looks at these quite differently. And so what they saw is that, first of all, there was a um, definite difference already from the outset in the amount of macular atrophy in the different, in the four groups, with the ranibizumab 0.5 monthly group having the most amount of macular atrophy at baseline already. Um, however, when they followed these patients month by month um, through the serial imaging up to month 24, uh, what they found was that the um, amount of uh, progression of macular atrophy was actually surprisingly no different between the four groups and was around uh, about 25% overall in all four groups. That was really interesting um, as a finding and uh, goes a little bit um, different or against some of the findings that, you know, the, the discussions that have, has generated this discussion that we saw in some of the CAT uh, study uh, findings, as well as some of the prior Ivan study findings, where there was a suggestion from their data that continuous regimen versus PRN did uh, generate or progress towards a higher percentage of macular atrophy at the end of the follow-up period. So I think, you know, this really also generates a lot of interesting discussion. Of course, the two studies that we just mentioned are not comparable due to the difference in the timing of the study, the methods, and the uh, images used for uh, grading the amount of macular atrophy and also how the treatment uh, was followed, one being observation and the other being active treatment with anti-VEGF. But I think, you know, they, uh, they point to a lot of good questions and it's really good food for thought for, for discussion. Thanks, Cynthia. Yeah, I think you bring up uh, an excellent pointer at the end, which is that, you know, this sheds more light. Will it ever definitively answer the question of whether anti-VEGF therapy plays a role in, uh, in the formation of macular atrophy? Uh, no, because that trial, as you said, is never going to happen because we'd really have to compare uh, uh, untreated group to a treated group. And, uh, 
And that's obviously that trial is not going to happen. But I think it's, it's great that we discuss these papers that are excellent in their own right, but we discuss them together because they, they give us, uh, you know, the different side of the coin. What happens in an eye that has never received anti-VEGF treatment? Well, we can see that there's still a significant amount of macular atrophy that develops. And so this may just be a natural uh, course of the disease. And if we compare, and then on the other hand, we have eyes that have been treated with anti-VEGF and contrary to some of the early, uh, the two-year CAT data uh, and the early analysis that was done on the Ivan data, which showed that perhaps more intensive treatment resulted in increased macular atrophy, uh, this post hoc analysis of the Harbor data uh, tells us that that's not really the case. And also demonstrates the necessity as our diagnostic technologies evolve to utilize these technologies and better understanding diseases. Uh, uh, and we can get into a little bit more later how we each measure uh, macular atrophy and geographic atrophy in our own practices and what imaging modalities we use. So with that, uh, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined uh, by the rest of our panel, Christina and Basil, as we take a deeper dive into what this very interesting data means for our day-to-day -day clinical practice. All right, welcome back to New Retina Radio Journal Club. Uh, joined now, after that excellent discussion by Dr. Cynthia Kian, by my other panelists, Christina Wang and Basil Williams. And so guys, let's talk a little bit about how this data translates into what you thought and what you see. So are you, based on these findings, totally convinced that anti-VEGF treatment has no effect on the formation of macular atrophy? Uh, are you more convinced than you were before? Is the jury still out? So let's go to you, Christina. What do you think? I definitely find the data reassuring. So from the Ivan, Cat, Harbor, Horizon, there's been a lot of studies that have hinted that there is a correlation between anti-VEGF and macular atrophy. And of course, that all makes us nervous, especially when you're trying to decide between different treatment regimens with a lot of the data showing us that monthly treatment is very good for visual acuity outcomes, it does make you think twice. But I thought it was, uh, referring to that first study from the ARIDS cohort, I thought that was a very um, excellent study to, to learn a lot from, because like you said, we're really leveraging history. We're leveraging a point that we'll never have again, where we can actually watch the natural history of untreated neovascular AMD. So I thought that was very reassuring to see um, uh, and learn from that, that just naturally, there's a lot of atrophy that happens without even any sort of intervention. And as you alluded to earlier, when we're talking about macular atrophy, which is distinct from geographic atrophy, we're talking about atrophy following subsequent to neovascular AMD, it really comes from three different points, right? You can get it from the natural disease state itself, so you can get it from the neovascular exudate, and you can also get it potentially from anti-VEGF drug treatment. So I thought that that study really helped to uh, calm some of the fears in terms of what anti-VEGF might contribute. But like you said, there's always this inkling of, well, maybe there is still some contribution because we're never gonna have you know, the ideal study where you would have one eye that's treated with wet AMD, the other eye that's not treated with wet AMD and compare those two, we'll never have that. So, um, you know, referring to the post-hoc analysis of the Harbor study, I thought Cynthia did a great job summarizing that. You know, it's hard to draw from that study um, that there's no effect. I don't think you can conclude that because there was no compared arm. So while we don't see a dose-dependent effect, given based on regimen or, or the dose itself, 0.5 or two milligrams, 
you don't know what necessarily would have happened in the absence of anti-VEGF because that study was looking at ranibizumab treatment. So, you know, there's still this tiny possibility, I think, but I think that the majority of what we see is natural history. I think that there is still a small possibility that anti-VEGF could be contributing, but I felt like these two studies were actually very reassuring. And the other thing that I will say that kind of caught me by surprise was just how shockingly high the incidence and prevalence of macular atrophy are in these populations. I mean, it's, it's, it's much higher than I guess any of, of us would have thought. And I think that's important to think about in the context of some upcoming treatments, fingers crossed, uh, in the next few years. Yep. Can't wait for all those combination trials that are likely to come out. But I, I think you hit it right on the head, and, and thank you for doing that for our listeners, that macular atrophy you know, could develop from three sources, as you said. Um, the natural history caused by exudative damage to the RPE uh, or potentially caused by anti-VEGF. And while this study does not, neither of these studies rules that out, it certainly makes us feel more comfortable that that component is likely small or certainly much smaller than what may have been hinted at by earlier studies. And just as a point of clarification uh, for our listeners, you know, uh, the CAT trial showed some difference uh, where uh, more frequent dosing uh, led to greater rates of atrophy at two years, but that result was not seen at five years. Uh, so that did not carry through. And Ivan, uh, when they did a revamped, uh, more detailed analysis of their initial data, which had found that, again, that there was a uh, frequency-related uh, 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 formation of uh, macular atrophy with anti-VEGF treatment, they actually, uh, it, it was refuted. So, so now we have some more uh, data that, that seems to point us in the direction that there is not likely or, or not likely a huge effect from direct anti-VEGF um, causing macular atrophy. Now, Basil, uh, let me ask you quickly, uh, in lieu of these findings, how does that change your management or how does that play into how do you treat your macular degeneration patients? Uh, does it make you feel a little bit better about treating them more frequently? Uh, did you previously, you know, before some of this data started coming out, worry about treating them too frequently? I don't think I, uh, first, I'd, I'd like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to participate. And I, I would say that when I'm thinking about taking care of patients with neovascular or macular degeneration, I'm more concerned about treating the disease than I am about the development of atrophy. And, I've, and that's always been the case. I agree um, with all, all three of you um, that have basically stated uh, that these studies are reassuring in a lot of ways. And I think uh, <clears throat> the natural history obviously plays a role. When you're looking at the ARED study, it is possible that because uh, patients that were treated with laser and PDT were excluded, there is some component of the exudative process that's playing a role in, in the development of macular atrophy. Whereas when you're looking at uh, the, the harbor post hoc analysis, there's potentially the element of the anti-VEGF medications that are playing a role. And so it seems like those two might be competing in some ways where if you're not giving injections, there may be a component of the exudative uh, part there. And if you are giving those injections, maybe that plays a role, but at least you're, you're uh, working on improving or, or hopefully curing uh, the process of neovascular macular degeneration. And so if if the, the uh, anti-VEGF medications are slightly uh, increasing the 
if they're slightly increasing the risk of macular atrophy development um, compared to the natural history, it doesn't seem that it's dose dependent. It doesn't seem that it's treatment style dependent. And so I don't really have a problem treating as much as necessary uh, to take care of the disease. And then you know on the other side, if you don't end up treating uh, at all, the exudative process might be playing a role to increase what's going on with the natural history anyway. So you might as well treat the disease the way it should be treated uh, without worrying as much about the role that it plays in uh, macular atrophy development. Great. Yeah, I, you know, to add my two cents, I think, you know, we'll know more about uh, the actual pathophysiology of this as uh, swept source OCTA uh, becomes a modality that most more of us use because then we'll be able to determine, you know, what does anti-VEGF treatment do to the morphology of these cordial neovascular membranes? Um, I think we're learning that it doesn't ever really make them go away. Um, and what it does is that it prunes them and takes away the potentially dangerous exudative component of it while maintaining, while maintaining the integrity of that cordial neovascular membrane, which can then preserve the RPE. And so that's just my two cents, my hypothesis as to why I think that anti-VEGF treatment does not uh, cause macular atrophy, but we'll know more uh, as we get more into swept source OCTA. So sort of quick fire before I kick it back to Cynthia for any final comments. Christina, Basil, I'll start with you. Christina, how, what modality do you use to follow geographic atrophy or macular atrophy? I think we all get OCTs already. So I think, that, of course, that's helpful. But I like following with color fundus photography as well as fundus autofluorescence. I think that's a really nice way of, of tracking borders. But, you know, as you said, I think that's going to become more prevalent. I don't think a lot of us sit there with measurements and really record metrics because there's nothing we can do about that disease state right now. But as we get some promising agents down the line for geographic atrophy, we may start actually, you know, sitting down and taking careful measurements and perhaps following those patients more often as well, since cross fingers, we may have a treatment to offer these patients finally. Yeah. Basil, what, what right, imaging so, modality do you use? Yeah, so I get uh, OCTs regularly. I'll also add autofluorescence uh, from time to time. But as Christina mentioned, I don't necessarily measure the atrophy uh, as often as I probably will when we have an option to do something more about it. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think all those modalities are great. I, I personally like OCT uh, because it allows me on the, uh, you know, on the C view, on the on-FOS view to, uh, to, to, to really delineate it well and then get more granular on the B scans as to what layers are being affected. So Cynthia, you've heard us uh, babble on here for quite some time. Uh, you are sort of the expert on these two papers. Any final thoughts? Uh, on anything you'd like to add? I think those, I agree completely with all the points that um, all three of you have made. I think um, as, uh, as you're saying, Jorge, as our technology gets better, the imaging modality is gonna make, you know, um, the quantification and characterization even better. But I think, you know, the SDOCT paper is, is a step in that direction in the sense that we're trying to really make it a more systematic way of quantifying and measuring these areas so as to be able to follow them better. And, you know, for, I think what we've seen and um, in the previous studies is that there's quite a bit of variation at the current time about the percentage of that. And I think part of it is just from, you know, using different um, modalities for imaging, uh, different measurement sizes, you know, does a lesion at uh, 150 microns um, count or is it really 175 or 250? So I think as our 
uh, imaging modalities get more in detail, I think we're going to come up with more consensus about how to best define and how to better see even at a more um, cellular level. Yeah, we sound like one of those NBC uh, uh, infomercials, right? Like the more you know. So <laughs> it's true. The more you know, the better you can uh, you treat and manage this disease. So with that, that's actually an excellent segue uh, and, and a great tease and preview for our upcoming episode where we'll, we will be discussing uh, swept source uh, wide field OCTA uh, in the uh, diagnosis of uh, diabetic retinopathy. I'd like to thank my co-panelists, uh, Christina, Basil, Cynthia. Thanks for joining us today. And to all our listeners, I'd like to remind you that you can download this uh, episode uh, wherever you download podcasts, a new retina radio journal club. And you can also visit the website at itube.net where you can uh, see our handsome or not so handsome mugs in the case of myself and Basil. Uh, and uh, you can also uh, subscribe and please don't forget to rate us so that we can continue to improve content for you. Uh, and with that, we'll be signing off. 